Welcome to the Supply Chain Careers Podcast, the only podcast for job seekers, professionals, and students who are focused on career-enhancing conversations and insights across all aspects of the supply chain discipline. This podcast is made possible by SCM Talent Group, the industry-leading supply chain executive search firm. Visit SCM Talent Group at scmtalent.com to search for or to post supply chain jobs. Visit the Supply Chain Job Board at SupplyChainCareers.com. I'm your podcast co-host, Mike Ogle. And I'm your podcast co-host, Rodney Apple. In this episode of the Supply Chain Careers podcast, Eric Wachendorf shares his career journey, from the leadership lessons he learned while being a supply officer in the Marines, to his first civilian supply chain position in operations at Target, to working on facility startups at Lowe's, to regional distribution operations for McKesson, to his current position as Senior Vice President of Supply Chain at Macy's. Eric talks with us about leadership, mentoring, how he sees supply chain careers changing, and his advice for professionals in the industry. Eric, we're happy to have you with us today. Welcome. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Glad to be here. How did you get started on your supply chain career journey? What were some of your greatest influences that got you started and helped you along the way? I wish I could tell you it was intentional and I planned every bit of it, but nothing could be uh, further from the truth. My supply chain actually started in my transition out of the military. So I was a military officer in the Marine Corps and made the decision that I wasn't going to make the Marine Corps a career and I was going to transition to the civilian world, which I knew absolutely nothing about. I had been in the military for, at that point, about eight years and made the decision that uh, I needed to do something else, but I had no idea what to do. I didn't know anything about it. And so I figured what would be the easiest way to market? What do I have to sell to companies? And it's very hard for military people transitioning the military sometimes to understand how to equate their experience in the military to a commercial environment. And I was one of those. I figured, well, I logistics. I was, uh, I was a combat arms infantry officer and then a supply officer in the Marine Corps. And I figured I could use that logistics experience and that would translate well to a commercial environment. So that's the route I went. And I was fortunate to find a uh, executive placement, a headhunter that specialized in transitioning military and uh, was very fortunate and able to find my first job as a frontline supervisor with the target out on the West Coast. And that was my introduction into logistics. And that started my process from there. What experience did you pull from the Marine Corps to help you be successful? Obviously, you've moved up the ranks with every stage of your career. Did you repurpose that experience? Did it help you from a leadership perspective? Yeah, absolutely. So as I look back along my career path and the things that I've done, there's been a couple of things that have really been foundational to the different jobs I've had and what I've done. And one of it is leadership. And what the Marine Corps um, is known for and is best at is, is teaching leaders. And leadership can be taught. The, the challenge I see when I look at a commercial environment or a civilian environment when they attempt to t- uh, teach leadership is they teach the same foundational skill sets that the military does, specifically the Marine Corps, 
What's missing is the day-to-day reinforcement of what you're being taught. So not only in the Marine Corps are you taught how to be a leader and define what a leader does, but every day you are surrounded by exceptional leaders in a work environment, both from what we call enlisted senior staff and COs that have been 20, 25 years in the Marine Corps that are helping you understand how to interact with people, what are you doing wrong, and kick you in the rear end when you're not doing it right, to officers that are teaching you what a leader needs to be and helping teach you strategy and at a different level. So you get it from both ends and it's day-to-day reinforcement. The very first unit that I was a part of in the Marine Corps, I was an officer. So I was a, a the most junior rank, a second lieutenant. And the next level of manager in the Marine Corps is basically a captain. And there are four of them that are in an infantry battalion unit, primarily four, uh, basically four or five. And the Marine Corps is very small compared to the other services. So to obtain a senior rank in the Marine Corps is much harder because it's a lot smaller and they have less of, the, less of those jobs. So become a general officer in the Marine Corps, the odds of that happening is much greater against you in the Marine Corps than it is anywhere else. Of the four captains that I worked around, three of them became general officers in the Marine Corps. Unbelievable odds. Of those three, two of them became four-star generals, which is just unbelievable, the odds against that. One of them was the Commandant of the Marine Corps and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And for the odds stacked up against that is just unbelievable. Those were the leaders that surrounded me for the first three years of my development as a leader. So I would have to be blind not to come out of that with the the foundation of what the the Marine Corps trained you in that day-to-day reinforcement with such exceptional leaders, not just average leaders, but clearly exceptional leaders. So that was the foundation that really, I believe, helped me. The second thing the Marine Corps does, and I would suggest any service does, I think the Marine Corps does it better, obviously, but that is self-discipline. So it teaches you self-discipline and what that takes and being able to sacrifice and to control your own destiny and to take ownership of that. And those two are very foundational to my entire career and to what success I've had in my career. Great. Do you still keep in touch with those folks? You make friends for life. So you can make a true friend as somebody you can call up that you haven't talked to in six years and say, I need help. And they don't ask on the plane there. And that's the kind of relationships you build in the Marine Corps or in any military service, frankly. Mm-hmm. Because misery loves company. You're being shipped around a lot. You're being transferred a lot. You come into new situations. And so you build that camaraderie. And frankly, the Marine Corps probably is known to be a little bit arrogant about their camaraderie. We're getting ready to celebrate a birthday coming up on November 10th, by the way, just around the corner from this recording. But it's a very special, unique fraternity, so to speak. With that 
transition as you were coming out of the Marine Corps and heading into a, a series of industry positions and, and working your way up. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those positions, how different their supply chains were, and some of the supply chain careers lessons that you learned as you transitioned between those positions? Sure, absolutely. So my first job coming out of the military, as I indicated before, I really didn't know what I was doing. I was looking for logistics. And I was extraordinarily fortunate. My first job was with, with Target and a, a premier company, marquee in its industry, an industry leader at the time. But what they were really known for back then was how they treated their, their employees, their colleagues, their associates. Back in the day, they called it fast, fun, and friendly. I, I don't know if they still use that term, but they were very employee-centric. And Coming out of the military, it was absolutely essential for me to understand that transition. They would assign a peer uh, sponsor to help you. And one day he came up to me and says, I need to talk to you. I go, okay, what's the problem? And he goes, I want you to go out and I want you to buy the most food dress watch you can and get rid of that military one you're wearing upside down on your wrist. I'm looking, I didn't think that I had a G-Shock watch. It was waterproof. I had it all my life. And so I never thought of it. I said, okay, why? And he goes, look, you already stand up straighter than everybody else. You have a presence about you that intimidate people. And he said, not you, but he said, you've got to soften your approach. I don't know if I ever fully learned that, but I went out and bought the most foo-foo dress watch I could find, wore it correctly on the right wrist, and I really appreciated that feedback. So that was the kind of environment that they tried to create. And it really helped me understand how to deal with people in a different environment where you're not dealing necessarily from authority, you're dealing from influence, you're coaching. It, it was an incredible company to do a transition with. I don't think I could have picked a better one. The second thing it taught me was one of my first managers was a former career sergeant major, a great guy and a very experienced supply chain guy. He taught me the mechanics of how to operate in a commercial environment. He taught me how slotting worked in a building. He taught me the behind the scenes of the warehouse management system and kind of the technical side of that. And that really got me excited about the potential of a career. So that was outstanding. This was on the West Coast. I had aging parents and I needed to get back East and there was no opportunity for me to go with Target to the East. So I started looking and I found a company at the time, Lowe's. And again, marquee company. I wish again, it was intentional. For me, it was a job close to where I needed to be. What I didn't know was that they were on the verge of creating their distribution network. They were intentionally going out looking for big people with big box retail background because they wanted to grow their distribution network. Their stores were growing at the time so fast, they couldn't build a store big enough at the time. And they're growing very rapidly. They had distribution. Their primary competitor at the time, Home Depot, did not have a distribution network. And they recognized it as a strategic advantage. But they also knew that they knew nothing about it and what they had wasn't going to work. So they brought about five of us in. I was one of the five. 
And they basically gave us a blank check, not reality, but almost, and said, build us a network, design us a building. How often do you get that opportunity? And I worked with some incredible industrial engineers. I had never done this before. I was an operator. I knew people. I knew how to make things happen. They taught me how a building gets designed. We had our own warehouse management system, and they had to modify that. And I learned about warehouse management systems and working with IT people. I was an applied math major at school. And so I knew how to talk engineering so I could learn things fast. And I knew math. I could talk and keep programmers honest because I knew logic. And so I could translate what I wanted the system to do into the logic, how to get there and understand whether it was in the realm of, you know, could we really do it or couldn't we? How much effort? That put me in a unique position. So I actually was at the ground level. I started as an operations manager there. I became what was called a planning manager. I was the first one. And it was a job that grew out of anything that was screwed up in the building. They gave it to me. And I built my own position. And fortunately, I was able to get whatever was wrong fixed. And that just gave them more opportunity to to give me something else that was broken. And so that's how I built that position. And as we expanded the network, it gave me an opportunity to start my first building startup of a big multi-million square foot facility. We did it with only two two of us from the company. And it taught me the challenge of creating a culture when you start a building up. I got involved in site selection. I'd never done that before. So that was uh, fascinating. And it allowed me to experience community relations because we tended to initially build our buildings in very remote areas um, for obvious economic reasons. We were the biggest game in town, and but we had a responsibility with that in in the community. They expected us to be a good neighbor, and and building those relationships was incredibly important. I was promoted to lead that building. Then I had the opportunity as uh, to influence the design of and start up and run two more uh, buildings for for Lowe's. And if you're ever involved in being what we call a founder, the first group that opens a building anywhere, it is the hardest thing you will ever do, but it is absolutely the most rewarding. Nobody can take that away from you. The culture you create, you own, you did it. You can't, it's not something you inherited. It's not anybody else's. It's all yours. And to this day, I can drive by the Lowe's building in Texas the Lowe's building in Pottsville, uh, Pennsylvania, and the Lowe's in Finley, Ohio, and say, that's my building uh, with great pride and that it's still performing and it's still running. I did that for 10 years. You build a reputation and you work with a lot of people. And it's really important for everybody to understand that because uh, you will build a, a professional reputation, both with suppliers you work with, with people that work for you, that work around you, that move on to other companies. And that can be a great asset for you. I was called up by a former boss that said, hey, uh, I'm working for this company and I need your help. I'm trying to do something new and I need you, I need an outsider's view of, of, of 
what I'm trying to do. McKesson is another marquee Fortune uh, uh, 50 company, one of the oldest in the Fortune 500, by the way. Um, and I don't make the drugs, but I get them from the people that do and give them to the people who need them, the pharmacies. And it was a unique business. I said, I don't know anything about drug business. And he goes, you don't need to. And he said, logistics, people, systems, I need your help. And it was the first time that allowed me to have multiple location responsibilities. So instead of just running a location, I now was responsible for a set of locations. And again, I was assigned as a, the vice president of distribution operations for a region. It was the most successful region. And I had absolutely incredible people that I worked with. And again, it's helping shape me. And it taught me as the first time I ever had experience face-to-face with our customers and actually got into customer negotiation. And the wholesale business, we one of the things that we sell is logistics. So I got involved in that discussion, in that sales cycle. I've never been involved in sales cycles before. And it was fascinating to be able to have that kind of contact directly with the customer. In the past, all my customers have been with stores and internal customers. I never had a face-to-face with an external customer, and that was exciting to me. And, and it was in each business. Most of my experience had been in case logistics. What you did in those distribution centers at the time was case in, case out. This was primarily each with just a little bit of case. Total different environment. Um, the business was also different in that the customer would put their order in by 9 p.m. and they get it by 6 a.m. And the value of the inventory was incredible. So the economics of that business was upside down different. The economics was all about the inventory. Um, labor expense and productivity was important, but what drove the business was inventory. It was all about the inventory. I did that for five years, and then I had the opportunity to leverage what I learned at Lowe's. We were trying to expand, uh, replace some buildings and do some consolidation, some network stuff. And because of my experience at Lowe's, I was tagged to help do that at a national level. So I I became responsible for their uh, distribution, U.S. pharma distribution capital plans organizing them, executing them, warehouse design. I was able to bring in automation, something that they're still using today and the platforms are still using today. So again, I was able to draw from experience. I was a little nervous because I knew nothing about the drug business. I got to remember the region I came in was the highest performing region. Career-wise, don't ever do that. Always go to the lower performing because it's easier to show improvement, but I was successful there because I listened. Uh, when you walk into a new job, I think there's pressure. Everybody thinks I got to change something right away. I don't do that. When I approach a new job, I'll go into it and, and I want to observe. I want to listen and I want to learn. And that shows respect for the people that you work with and around. And they appreciate that you've taken the time to understand something before you suggest a change. And to me, that helps that change be adopted. You build credibility that way because you've taken the time to understand it. And that's what's been successful for me. So I did that for 10 years. Again, you build a reputation. I get a phone call. And it's from a fellow supervisor that I worked with at Target some 15 years ago. 
And he calls up and he says, hey, you remember me? And I said, yeah, I, I remember who you are. We weren't best of friends. We knew each other. We worked together. And he said, you know, uh, your name's in my book. And I go, what does that mean? He says, in my book, I've written names of people that I've worked with that, and I followed their careers and I want them to work on my team. I've been following your career. I've been following, I'd like you to come work for me. And I said, where are you working now? And he said, Macy's. And I said, oh, back to retail. And I said, what do you want me to do? And he said, this direct-to-consumer business. I didn't know anything about direct-to-consumer. And here we go. It's McKesson all over again. I'm going, uh-oh, what am I getting into? But I knew the individual. I trusted the individual. He said, look, you've got the skill set. You can help us. And you'd be good at it. And I said at the time, no, nah, no, thank you. So over a two-year period, I finally said yes. And I went to Macy's. And again, I wish I could tell you I planned it this way, but I didn't. And six years later, I'm now uh, senior vice president for the supply chain, uh, responsible for all the domestic operations in the company. But again, it was, it was not planned, but part of it is your reputation you build. And so one of the things I would say to, to listeners is always keep that in mind. Everything you do, you're going to carry a reputation with you on how you did it, how well you do it, how fast you learn, what your professionalism is he or she a nice guy to work with and do I enjoy working with that person? And so you carry that when you realize it or not, you carry that reputation and those relationships you build, not just internal to your company, but external to suppliers and to vendors are, are extremely important. During this short break, we recognize that this podcast is made possible by SCM Talent Group the industry-leading supply chain executive search firm. Visit SCM Talent Group at scmtalent.com. To search for or to post supply chain jobs, visit the supply chain job board at supplychaincareers.com. That's a fascinating story, Eric. I love those kind of stories too, just hearing how you take something and then you take some risk and you leverage the network that you build, the relationships. I think so many people get into this and they don't understand the importance of it until later on in life or when they need a job, they start turning on the networking. You made a good point throughout your story that it's important to build and maintain those relationships and your reputation throughout every chapter of your career. So kudos to you for that. <laughs> it's important to drive things on an internal basis, but when you look externally, you rely on a lot of external partners and suppliers. When you walk into a meeting, you're vetting new suppliers. What kind of characteristics do you look for that kind of signal that they're going to be a good fit for your organization? For me personally, we try to pick partners that number one, have the same type of values that your organization has, your company your organization has. You want it to be a good value fit. The things that you believe in, how you uh, treat people, how your ethics, you want to try to find a partner that has those same type of, of values. The other thing I would suggest, and, and I deal a lot with consultants and consulting organizations on the supply chain side. And I can tell you that while there are consulting companies, the team that you get is probably as important or more important than the company itself. Because there's a personality. You want to try to find a team that has a personality that is compatible with your team's group. And that, so the second thing I look for is how well does this 
business partner mesh with the people that they're going to be working with? Are we going to be able to have a excellent communication? Are we going to be able to treat each other like we would expect to be treated? Um, and then the third thing is it's important to always create a win-win relationship. So you can be a top negotiator and you can try to negotiate pricing down or, or services or whatever you're negotiating to the point where they're not making any money on it, but that's a short-term relationship. And in logistics, particularly long-term relationships, there's a lot of value to understanding the nuances of businesses on both sides. It can be taken advantage of and you got to be careful of that, but you, you want a business partner that is going to be with you for the long run. And that means that both parties make a fair profit out of it. It means there needs to be a reason for both parties to be in that relationship. And you need to look at it from more of a long-term than a short-term. So that's how I do business. The sales cycle is so long and it's very expensive for companies. You spend, they spend a lot of time, energy, and money in a sales cycle. And I'm pretty honest and pretty blunt with consultants very early on if I don't feel that it's a good match or we, or we aren't serious. I don't like just fishing for an idea. We approach with a very specific need. If, when we don't select somebody, I also try to be very specific with them on why we didn't select them for feedback. They may disagree with it and that's okay, but at least they heard it and hopefully it may help them be better next time for someone else. And on a related topic, everybody wants a high-performing team. When you're recruiting and looking for top talent, what are the things you look for and, and how do you vet and assess candidates looking at the, both the hard and soft skills? When you look at a resume, your first introduction to an individual is what's on paper. Everybody has their different techniques. But what I'm looking at, there's two things I look at for a resume. One, I'm looking at a progression of responsibility. What I'm looking for is okay, what did that other job from an experience perspective give that individual? How did it make that individual a stronger candidate or stronger person? It's not a title, it's responsibility. What did they do and how did that progress? The second thing I look at is, is differentiators. So what differentiates this piece of paper from that piece of paper? Easier to do when you're dealing with more senior level individuals that usually have more experience. So you can differentiate experience. Much harder to do when you're recruiting for a more entry-level position. So again, I'm looking for differentiators both on paper and in person. One of the reasons why I majored in math was because not only did it give me some training and the ability to think logically and understand, not to panic when you don't know the answer, but it's also a differentiator. There are two differentiators on my initial resume. I was an officer of Marines and I had an applied mathematics degree. There aren't that many resumes out there that have those. So that, it differentiated me from probably the other 300 that pieces of paper they were looking at. For the young listeners who are coming out of school, it could be experiences in school. I was a coach. Operations is all about people. We can teach you technical stuff. We make it harder than it really is. We can make it more complex. It's really about getting people uh, to work for you and motivating people. Coaches are, are great at that. 
you find a young leader that has a lot of coaching experience and loves that kind of competitiveness and that type of environment, great person for operations. So you learn about those kind of differentiators. I don't think the differentiation needs to be all professional. It can be related experiences. Have you used mentors throughout your career? Are you serving as a mentor these days? I would answer it informally. So I've never been in a formal mentor program relationship, but there are people that I consider my mentors that I have taken the initiative to approach. So one of the things that I look for in people is the ability to be observant, to open your eyes, open your ears, and take advantage of every situation you're in and learn something from it. So if I'm sitting on in a, in a meeting, in a large meeting, and I may be more of a spectator than I am a, a active participant, what I do is I watch what occurs in that meeting and who the leaders are. So if the CEO is in the meeting and he or she makes a point about something, I ask myself, okay, what's behind that? Where are they going? What triggered that? What are the positions of the different organizations being represented? And so that's how I learn is by watching and absorbing others. And I've been told I'm a very quick learner. And I think that's because it helps me think about what's next. So from a mentor perspective, my best mentors that I've watched have exhibited a characteristic that I think could help me. And I approach them first informally And then I approach them with business problems and my approach and ask their opinion. So I've been the initiator of those relationships and have been very strong. But that's what I have found very successful for myself. As far as doing it for others, I try to take that approach. I believe very strongly that my success or how I rate my success is one of the ways I do it is based upon the success of the people that work for me. I am very proud of the fact that I've got six people that have reported to me that are frontline managers that are now running their own buildings and one is actually a retired director level. So watching people progress through their career that I believe have talent, I take a lot of pride in. And I, I try very hard to reach out to those individuals and make myself available. But it, as an individual, you have to take advantage of those opportunities and you got to recognize them. And you can't be afraid to reach out when you see someone that you think can be helpful. That's a great point. And, and I'm a big believer, too, in mentorship, but I'm the same way. It's been informal I've got people I can reach out to when I need help, and it's always been that way. So to our audience, you don't need to have a, a fancy sit down with a framework type mentorship. You just need to lean on the experts and people that can help and are willing to help and be willing to pass the buck when it's your turn. So, And I think most people appreciate that, even the busiest of people. I think they appreciate being asked, and I've never had anybody turn me down or be negative it just takes a little guts to ask sometimes. I think the difficulty in some of those formal programs is it's hard to match people. I, when you do it the informal way, I think the informal approach for me personally has worked better than, the, than a formal program. If you got to go back and talk to your younger self as an undergraduate, 
maybe in the beginning or even close to graduation, or maybe a little bit of each. What would you wish you had known as an undergraduate student? I think there's two lessons. One is you got to love what you do. And I know that's a canned phrase and sometimes overused, but understand that the decisions you're making you're, is not going to be your ultimate end. So you, you sit as an undergrad and you're planning it out. I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I went to a liberal arts school in Kentucky. I said that I was going to be an economics and management major and I was going to go to law school. So I turned out to be an economics and management major, but also an applied math major. I became a, an officer of Marines and I was the farthest thing from a law school that I've ever been at. Understand that the decision that what your view of where you're going to be is going to change. It's going to be dynamic. Understand that it's probably going to change. It's important that you find things that interest you, that you're passionate about, that you enjoy doing. Understand that really your major is going to teach you how to think. It's going to expose you to ideas with the exception of maybe physicians and some scientists. A lot of your major is not going to be directly relevant. It's going to give you uh, soft skill sets. It's going to teach you logic. It's going to teach you things like that. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is relationships, the power of relationships, how important relationships and the people that you associate with, the people that you build relationships with, and your network. It is so important. You're building a reputation from day one. And it's important to always keep that in the back of your mind. And, and really ask yourself, what kind of reputation are you building for yourself? And that could be through your actions, through the people that you associate with and the decisions you make. And sometimes when early on and you're young, you, you, you don't realize really how important that is. And I think that's uh, a component I would stress greatly for, for kids coming out of school today. A lot of innovation going on in, in logistics and supply chain. It's hard to keep track of these days. But from your lens, what are you seeing in the years ahead as you look at how supply chain careers are going to change in the next several years? Sure. Um, so I think it's always been there. And it's been automation and, and the introduction of IT into what we do. So you always needed to be aware of, of systems but even more so now with artificial intelligence and software that's coming online, to be a, a logistics professional, you need to be uh, almost an IT professional because you are so intertwined with systems and understanding how systems work, what their capabilities are, what their weaknesses and strengths are is becoming so much more critical than when I was coming through. The other thing that I'm seeing in the industry are things that allow you to do more with less. Utilize systems and software to be more efficient and more effective. You have so much more information than what you used to have. And you've got detailed information to the point where it's now information overload. And so what you're starting to see are systems that help organize and present that information in a manner that allows you to make decisions but it's not automatic. So it takes people to understand how to organize that information and you need to have a basis understanding of how you can organize it to be able to say what you wanna see. And so 
that I think is the trend that you're seeing. Artificial intelligence is the ability to learn from real world action and trying to, to make decision processes faster and more efficient. The automation you're seeing in the industry is a direct result of trying to uh, address the workforce shortage that is facing us. And I think you're going to see it not just within the four walls of the warehouse, you're seeing it from a transportation perspective. I would argue that we are not that far off from seeing self-driving trucks. And we have driver shortages, we have challenges. And so everywhere you see it, you're going to start seeing automation being introduced, which requires an understanding of it, a knowledge of it, how to apply it, when to apply it, and how to do it smartly. So that's a total different type of leader because at the same time, you're still dealing with people. And in operations, it's all about people. Regardless of the automation, usually, usually you find people that are good at leadership or good at the technical side. The demands are finding someone who's good at both. And those that can make that marriage are the ones that are going to be truly successful in logistics. And I think that's what you're starting to see. You're even seeing colleges approach it differently because they understand the interdependence. And the last trend is it's now an international economy. So in the past, when I came up in the supply chain, the knowledge of what happens overseas and your contact with what happens overseas outside of your country was minimal. You had professionals that specialized in that, but now it's a world economy. You have to have a world perspective. One of the Marine Corps gave me an exposure to different countries. The school that I went to, Center College, the liberal arts school, now requires for graduation every student to spend a semester overseas. And that program set up in different countries. You can pick your country. But they believe that a true liberal arts education requires international exposure. That's how far we've come in the 20 years, 25 years since I've been in school. And I think it's absolutely spot on that we're now dealing with a global economy global logistics, and the knowledge of logistics is much broader than it ever has been. Supply chain careers definitely need continuous improvement. How do you keep up with changes and advise others to keep improving? First thing is you got to own it, okay? Don't don't expect to be spoon-fed the information. So don't sit there and say, it's up to the company I work for to train me or to give me that exposure. You need to own and be aggressive in learning how to do that. I think the industry pre-COVID, there's lots of opportunities, either from physical industry events, educational events, every free show, any trade show always has as part of that show classes that you can sign up for to see things, to understand equipment you may never have seen before, ask questions of the experts that are there. These type of shows concentrate experts in one spot and it gives you an opportunity to take advantage of those experts and ask questions and and those kind of things. Online, I think most trade organizations have opportunities. It seems like certifications have, have proliferated. So there's plenty of formal educational opportunities now. Most of the universities that you talked about do offer logistics, some types of undergrad and graduate logistics programs now. And particularly for the graduate ones, most of them offer an online version of them because they realize that they're dealing with logistics executives that are within five or six years of their career. 
<clears throat> so I think there's plenty of opportunity. You just have to be aggressive in doing it. And I think you also need to schedule it. You need to talk to your manager, your supervisor, and you need to talk about it. And, and you, may have to investigate, you may have to invest your own personal time in it. But it's valuable to understand what's going on because you need to keep up with the changes to understand how to apply. Eric, a last question. If you can think back in your career, what's some of the best advice you've received that really helped to move your career forward? And then do you have a couple of your own nuggets of wisdom to share with our audience? Again, you got to enjoy what you do. You need to be passionate about it. Find something you're passionate in and go after it. And you got to be genuine. You got to be yourself. Everybody has a different style of, of personality style, leadership style. And I, what I have found through my career is you don't try to be something you're not. Not everything about you is going to be a positive. There might be something that you need to be conscious of that turns people off, but you can control it. You can recognize the triggers that trigger it, but it's going to be very difficult to change. And if you try to change it, you may come across not being genuine. I try to be very honest and very genuine with the people that I work around whether the people I work that I work for, the people I work with, and the people that work for me. It's a cliche. I try to treat people the way that I want to be treated. I can be honest, sometimes brutally honest, but it's important. I always tell one of the first things I tell a new boss is don't ask me a question you don't want an answer to. I think that because I tell the people that work for me, when I ask you a question, I want your real opinion. There's a reason I'm asking it. So you need to be very genuine um, in, in your approach and you need to understand how your approach can help and how it can hurt and try to control the situation. I think the second piece of advice that I, I would give, and it was given to me at one point, is how you react to bad news is critical in your career. Because that's going to determine whether you're going to be given that news again. So if you want transparency, you want the ability to have your team to be able to be successful, you have to be able to take bad news without blowing up. Things in logistics are not always going to go right every day. And they're going to go wrong. You don't want to make the same mistake a lot of times. But how you react to bad news is really going to determine how successful and how transparent your team's going to be. And I think people forget that, particularly from my generation. And I've seen horrific examples of that in my career, and it just sticks to me every time. Because I think there's sometimes a perception that if you don't react that way, you're accepting the performance. And that's not the case at all. So that would be my two pieces of advice. And how about the, oh, wait, that wasn't my fault. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you own that. And I think one of the things that, I, again, back in my Marine Corps days, they teach you to, to take responsibility for your actions, right? It's easier to take responsibility for something when you have a boss that is going to not blow up at you when you screw it up, because you're going to screw it up. Okay, we all make mistakes, gosh. But it helps when you're in an environment that not necessarily accepts a mistake, but understands you're going to make it. 
And then what do we learn from this? So what are we going to do to help mitigate the impact of it and, how, and that type of approach? Eric, thank you for a great conversation and insights about supply chain careers. Thanks, Mike. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Supply Chain Careers podcast. Be sure to listen to other episodes and sign up to be notified when future episodes are released as we continue to interview industry-leading supply chain experts. This podcast is made possible by SCM Talent Group, the industry-leading supply chain executive search firm. Visit SCM Talent Group at scmtalent.com. To search for or to post supply chain jobs, visit the Supply Chain Job Board at supplychaincareers.com.